The following episode was recorded initially for the one-on-one podcast, but as the theme of our conversation follows very well the topics covered in Food Broken Promises, I decided to publish the episode again so that you don't miss out on this great conversation. So enjoy. through my work on climate change and food that is really what what the world food prize put shown this you know and it continues to shine this very bright spotlight on climate change and food the food system is responsible for 30% of the total human caused greenhouse gases it's amazingly big this is one on one a table for two production I am Antoine Aboussamra. I really was part of the group of scientists who were asking not just the what if question of what would happen to the climate, but the so what questions of why do we care? Impacts researchers that I'm really part of, it's what's happening to the water resources, what's happening to the forests, what's happening to the ecology, and what's happening to the food. In every episode, I invite you to hear the stories of people in the world of food who are on a mission to protect the environment, defend their cultures, or fight for more social and economic justice. One-on-one will help you see the world in a different way. Listen, it's not only that climate change is happening, climate change solutions and actions are happening. There's just tremendous uptake. Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be back for a new episode of the one-on-one podcast. And today is a very, very, very special one because we have the honor, privilege and pleasure to welcome Dr. Cynthia Rosenzweig. She's the uh, World Food Prize Laureate for 2022. I was going to say it's the Oscars of food <laughs> agriculture, <laughs> but they say it's a Nobel Prize, you know, for scientists. <laughs> Good afternoon, Cynthia. Good afternoon, Antoine. Shortly as a bit of background, uh, so you're, you're a senior research scientist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, uh, which is co-located at Columbia with the Climate School as well, where you are also uh, part of the of the faculty, you're also a, a senior uh, researcher. And one of the things that is extru- that is very specific about your experience is that you were one of the first ones, if not the first one, to, to model basically the impact of climate on agriculture and on land. There was a paper in 1985, that was the first paper that you that you wrote on that. And at the time, you were you were a uh, trainee, an intern at uh, at the Goddard Space uh, Institute for Space Studies, and there was a question uh, that came down from that back then director Jim Hansen. That was what happens to to food, basically. You know what will happen to food. So this is how it started. That's correct. Jim Hansen, who uh, was uh, my longtime boss, director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, uh, was originally from Iowa. 
I think this might be why he asked this question. He was on the top floor of our institute. I was in the like lowly, almost basement. And this question came filtering down based on really some of the early projections of the global climate model, which was developed at, um, at, at our institute, which was projecting the climate effects all over the world of increasing greenhouse gases. So there was the climate projections. Mm-hmm. There, there were the climate projections. But Jim had Jim asked the question, what will happen to food? The question came trickling down to my to the almost basement where my uh, um, office was with a window on the air shaft, you know, in New York <laughs> City, the buildings some don't even have <laughs> some of them don't have windows to the street. And I was there and I I uh, had my master's in agronomy, soils and crops from Rutgers and was working on remote sensing of agricultural scenes there at, at the NASA uh, Institute, Research Institute. But this question was really the other, I was the only person there who could begin to answer that question. So what I what I say is I, I began to answer Jim's question about how climate change would affect food. And I've basically been answering it ever since. Yeah. So you were an agronomist and there's a love of food. There is a love of agriculture that has that has come. From, if I understand correctly, there's a place called Valia. Yes. That, that has been very important in your development. Can you can you tell us a bit more about this wonderful place? Yes. So um, I really fell in love with agriculture. So that mm-hmm. the story with Jim Hansen is really how I be how I started working on the interactions of climate change and food. But even before that, my love of agriculture, even before I studied agronomy, was that uh, my husband-to-be and I uh, went to live in uh, the country outside of Florence um, in Tuscany. Mm. And uh, we were very, very fortunate to have a... to spend live in one of those farmhouses people might have seen the pictures of them they have red tile roofs yes it's um, kind of this like dull you know this brown color and we rented one of those and our neighbors came and taught us how to how to how how, how to do the agriculture the farming from that farmhouse oh, that's and that's beautiful. when i fell in love with agriculture it's a beautiful life good food good producers you know where it comes oh from oh my gosh <laughs> absolutely the best <laughs> don't don't the best. do you miss that yes i do i do and in fact so we are so our family um now um we're about we're doing it there's sort of our, our kids are helping us get get back every 5 years for a stay in Tuscany to get all together now with the family. And yeah. so, yes, but all during COVID, of course, we, yes, missed it terribly. So, yes, and we have a very strong connection still. Because yeah. that connection, Tuscany. that connection to the land, that connection to the soil that nurtures us at the end of the day is is so important. When you, when you started your studies and did you... Did you always wanted to do something for that to keep that you know that way of living to keep that way of 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 growing things? Right. Yes, I think so. Um, 
And also the interaction with climate came very early mm -hmm. in my studies. I studied a uh, Middle Eastern, a, a clover. It's called subterranean clover. It's from the Middle East mm -hmm. originally. Um, and it um, can it can survive um, because it it puts its seed heads down, seed heads down in the soil. It can survive cool temperatures. And mm -hmm. so for my master's uh, thesis, I did a study on uh, sub clover, it's called, to see how, what the climate connections, in that case, it was because it's colder environment here. But just fast forwarding, then when I got started with the modeling mm -hmm. of climate and, and um, food and crop interactions um, and uh, founded AGMIP, which I'm sure we're going to get to in a yes, moment. Definitely, um, yes, definitely. This uh interplay with being still connected to the land the actual growing and what it really takes and i you know i continue to be in utter awe of farmers um who who interact with the land year in and year out season by season um but then with the science we do the modeling right which is an abstraction of that right so i'm going to tell a story about agmip now we have held, we hold workshops before COVID and we mm -hmm. hope to get back to them, hold workshops all over the world with um, agricultural researchers and modelers. And we would have five days and because there's so much work with the coding and then the scenarios and the climate data and the ag data, et cetera, um, and soil data, you know, but I would insist that in the five days we had to stop doing mm -hmm. the computer work and that we have to go to the field and see the agriculture. So in South Africa and Tanzania and all around the world. Um, oh, in, um, um, in Brazil, uh, you know, everywhere. So um, that, so that, uh, that I'm bringing the modelers to, you know, to, I, 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 I insisted on making sure that the modelers also were connected to the land. Yeah, it's so, so very important to actually see what they what exactly. they're studying on. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> because math, math is and, and modeling can be fascinating, but there's a connection to reality. Exactly. Talking about connection, th there was two things I was wondering: is how come that relationship between you know climate and food came at that time and not before? It was just like uh, it's it's because food is 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 you know so important for our lives. Without it, we're we're not there. You think it it was the right time? It was a bit late. There may be reasons for that. People were not aware, or they didn't really think about that. That is a really really good question. There was so much emphasis for so long in the climate change issue just on the climate. Mm -hmm. But what I was part of was, I really was part of the group of scientists who were asking not just the what if question of what mm -hmm. would happen to the climate, but the so what questions of why do we care? Why do we care about climate change? Mm -hmm. If it didn't affect every single thing on the planet, it would just be, oh, the climate is changing, right? But that's why, but in the impacts... The impacts researchers that I'm really part of, it's what's happening to the water resources, what's mm -hmm. happening to the forests, what's happened to the ecology, and what's happening to the food. So it took a while for 
um, but Jim's Jim's question was very was prescient, so that that then to, so that's when I really I got was able to get started very early on the so what answering the so what question of Im- climate impacts. Yeah, and there was something also that was also extremely interesting is that the work that you've been doing you cannot do it in isolation as you were mentioning right now. There's so many different things that are interrelated that are connected that are so complex that is not just let's say climatologists that would understand everything or agronomists that would understand everything there has to be that that cooperation and that collaboration how complicated was it at the beginning because now you know, people take it for granted in in a way that people are working together but back then when when you when you started working on those issues how complicated was it to get people at the table and then yes. starting to work together? Yes, right. So the crop modelers at that time were were grouped into tribes oh. because there were different different crop models that were de- developed, and then there were kind of a tribe of people who used that model, and then there were other tribes who had developed other models, oh. and. Frankly, the the tribes there was like intertribal warfare. <laughs> it's like we have the best model. No, we have the best model. No, we have the best model. So what what I say is, both the models and the modelers were finally mature enough oh. to actually then come together, <laughs> and that's really a lot. You know, then what the what what really uh, my work involves is. Bringing, bringing the researchers together and designing the protocol-based um, assessments so that the rigor of the science is, is strengthened so that then we then, when we take our results to policymakers and the UNFCCC mm-hmm. uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change process, we are, just as the climate scientists have been doing, for, mm-hmm. had been doing for years, we then now are doing that for in our case, agriculture and food. Yeah. As we're moving forward in time, there was a moment that was that was very interesting where there was that connection that was made, I think it was uh, 2008, where the connection between the, what they call anthropogenic climate change, which is basically the result of human actions, okay, on climate, and that it was basically the cause of that climate change that has an impact on biological and, and physical uh, aspects of, of the world. How sure were you at the time when you <laughs> published that? Was it something that you realized that, okay, when you say with certainty, you know, how was it a surprise or it was just a way of actually, okay, you saw the, the numbers, but you needed to be make sure that there was that link, that connection between what we did as human beings and the impact on, 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 on the climate. Yes. So this is the research area um, uh, that I brought to the IPCC, which was is called Detection and Attribution of Climate Change Impacts. So it's it's complicated because on any of our impact sectors, but here we're talking about mm-hmm. agriculture and food, there are many stresses on there are many things that affect, let's say just very simply crop yields in mm-hmm. any one agricultural region around the world. And 
what we began there and now um, great um, new work, we're, we're involved in great new work, continuing this is to really, you see everything that happens, let's say to crop yields, is not necessarily climate change. Mm-hmm. So one of the areas that, that we work that we work on in science is to understand it in let's say yield trends um that are negative in some places or extreme events for example in france um the very very high temperature mm-hmm. um, that um, you know also had tremendous heat stress effect um and mortality but also affected the crops at the same time and so what we do is we analyze the trends in the crop yields and what happens what happened and link them to the climate and then an additional piece of it is the greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. right that is then affecting the climate it's then that affects the crop yields but it's not you can never say one to one it's um we're analyzing how much is climate change how much is just natural climate variability uh how much is what uh, perhaps there was a policy that year that then um, from the governments. So that's what we do. That's one of the areas uh, that we work on in science okay. and, um, of climate change impacts. Because of the complexity uh, and and the way to communicate that complexity to the audience, to you know the mainstream people, to the to to the people across the world, isn't that because it's complex that it's hard to explain and that. Some people are exploiting that difficulty to bring out ideas that are, you know, much more easily understandable, but not necessarily true. And this is why you get a lot of misinformation, disinformation. Isn't that an issue in terms of the communication of that complexity? Well, I would say also certainly more in the beginning. Right now we're in, I would say, a different place because the climate trends and the increasing frequency and duration of climate extremes mm-hmm. around the world mm-hmm. have now then led to most everyone understands. I mean, it's they've experienced mm-hmm. climate change themselves. So there's, I think fundamentally, there's been a real shift in acceptance of the issue. But back in the beginning, when climate change was just getting going, I mean, mm-hmm. lately now we've been seeing this much stronger effects, right? But in the beginning, it it was really challenging, I think, to for the scientists to communicate um, that based on rigorous science, these the this these are the this is what's really going on, because it it is so challenging to our civilization, which mm-hmm. is based on the use of energy, right? And this is really. Um, Climate change, not all of it, but uh, a great deal of it is linked in regards to greenhouse gas emissions to um, sources from burning of fossil fuels. Yeah. So there was, I think, this opportunity in the beginning for these kinds of real bringing from different, you know, different points of view about climate change. But I do feel, and I, you know, I, I wonder if you do too. I mean, right, you know, really in the past, like let's say five years, with so many climate extremes happening around the world, affecting food supplies, affecting all, all in all the different impact sectors. 
coastal flooding, um, the, you know, some migration has some climate change, mm -hmm. like drought in Syria, for example, in the Middle East. Again, it's not a one-on-one. -on -one. It's not that climate change caused every single Everything, person yes. to leave Syria, no, the, who did, but it, but it's a contributing factor. And I just, and I, my feeling from having lived through all of this in my working career and my research career, that right now there's much greater acceptance yeah. of the issue. And I hope that the I hope less mis misinformation. I think so. Uh, it's very it's very important because you 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 realize uh, I've I've seen the, the change in in the weather pattern uh, from the 80s compared to now, for instance. It's there's just there are things that are you know <laughs> doesn't make sense anymore. It's undeniable, uh, really. Yeah, see, yeah. it's see there were climate deniers, yes. you know, and you know we which definitely were there. De denying the climate, um, climate change, uh, and the role of human beings—that that's mm -hmm. really what the what I think the real argument was about. Yes. Yeah, um, it's not but us. Now <laughs> there aren't really climate deniers or any more climate change deniers. There may be a few here and there, but much many fewer. Yeah, much less. the The impact of of on on our on our lives is, is 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 definite and and the work that you do on a constant basis is to is to bring those information and those models to the decision makers uh so you've been involved in the uh, in the IPCC uh report uh of 2019 on the on climate change and land so this is something that is right what, what you on what you're working on and as in in parallel in 2008 so it was before that uh you started agmip so it's a very it's an acronym <laughs> you love acronyms huh you scientists there's, there's something, yeah, right, something right. With we're, acronyms. We're, growing, we're growing acronyms <laughs> <laughs> it's our product no i'm just kidding so so what is what is what does AGMIP... okay agmip stands for agricultural agricultural model intercomparison and improvement project the i stands for two things okay. so we inter so we intercompare the models so we brought the tribes together that's really what agmip did it brought these crop modeling tribes together everybody and the models were finally ready to be able to rigorously all do protocol based um assessments of the climate change so that we are able to be when we bring the results to the policymakers, we're able to it's on a much stronger scientific foundation yes. so that's really what agment that's the what that's one whole part of agment it's um that's the intercomparison part yeah but the other part mm -hmm. of the i stands for improvement because <laughs> we can't just keep using the same models over and over <laughs> we, you know, we're constantly learning, constantly getting, you know, uh, interacting with uh, our colleagues who do the field experiments, getting those data and bringing those data and more processes like right into the models so that as we go along, we're not we're, so that when we do the next assessment and our work goes mm -hmm. really cool, you know, really kind of like highway to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment mm -hmm. Reports, you know, that it's always with the latest and greatest so that we're really using the best science at all times right now we're working with nutritionists um nutrition specialists mm -hmm. to bring more nutrition into the models all it before and it really there was just yield 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 
But now we know that the carbon dioxide, while on the one hand, it, it boost, helps to boost yields in some uh, crops and regions, um, but at the same time, the high CO2 has effects on the protein quality and the micronutrients in crops. Mm -hmm. So we're now bringing those into the crop models so that we can have a much um, more uh, fuller picture of what the actual effects uh, will be. Yeah, because the at the end of the day, you're, as you're saying, having uh, nutritious food, healthy food, uh, is is also very important. It's not not just about you know uh, calories. It's uh, it's different. You know, a dinner at uh, a trattoria in, in in Firenze is one thing, and a meal at McDonald's is a different exactly. one. Exactly. <laughs> Even though I know McDonald's and all the, they're trying, they're trying. So yes. Yeah, so but in terms of nutrition quality is, is different. Totally yes, and. And this nutrition quality for all is just, is you know so we're now really bringing because there's a whole group of nutrition experts who work on just the nutrition part of food. You may have had mm. them on on one on one um, podcasts with yet. you. Not um, yet. And oh well, I can hook you up to. Oh, some that, I would love to. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. So you see, there's it's almost kind of a parallel effort. So there's the climate change. And the countries of the world getting together and and putting forward their um, nationally determined contributions to solving climate change, and then the nutrition experts are doing something similar in getting countries to um, agree to targets to improve the nutrition um, of their citizens. And one of the efforts that we're doing is trying to bring those two groups and two um, efforts together. Well, that's wonderful. There's a we're going to come back on the science part, but there's there's something I, I I wanted to 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 touch upon because you were talking about the impact you wanted to have on the on the policymakers. So you 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 look at the science, you do those complicated research and try to understand what is happening, and then you bring this to to, uh, to the policymakers. Uh, Copenhagen was a bit of a wake-up call, if I understand correctly. There was a realization that maybe to change at the country level, it's complicated. So there was a direction towards cities. Can, can you tell us a bit more about that 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 support for the sure. cities and what they're trying to yes, do? Yes, sure, sure, sure. Um, our institute is located in Manhattan, New mm. York City. And I've, I'm from the New York metropolitan region. And parallel to our work with agriculture and food, with my work with agriculture and food, I also started with urban specialists' work on climate change in cities. And what we came to realize is that the cities are at the right level to, to do so much on climate change solutions. Mm -hmm. Cities themselves are responsible, depending on how you count, of course, but um, they're responsible for up to 70% of greenhouse gas emissions in their processes, transportation, mm -hmm. manufacturing, um, et cetera. And at the same time, they're on the front lines, all the cities on the coast, as Beirut is, mm -hmm. sea level rise, coastal flooding, in, you know, as sea level rises, the storm of the same strength goes further inland on the flooding. And then the heat stress 
the uh, vulnerability of the, the of the populations of the lower income mm -hmm. populations mm -hmm. and we realize that the cities are can play this important role and yes yeah, so when when at the Copenhagen conference of the parties um uh the countries had a very hard time coming to any agreements there there they couldn't come to the uh, their, the really the agreement that finally happened in Paris mm -hmm. uh in 2015 but the um, but the cities we participated in the cities they were driving electric cars around the main square with they you know they drove all the mayors drove over and we and to the university and we had this wonderful interaction so um and by the way just linking to food you know urban areas are where the consumers are mm -hmm. so it's really important to include and this this leads to something on the you know food system approach beyond agriculture. What's really the field is now going to food system. So it's not just the supply side; it's also the demand mm -hmm. side. And in when you look at the demand side, you have to take cities into account in the food for the food in the food system. Have you seen changes? Yes. Definitely, it's amazing. I'm, you know, I want to ask you too if you've seen them in in Beirut. But for example, we just gave this. Uh, we just we just we did a class at the Columbia uh, School for International Public Affairs, uh, SIPA School, and uh, we were talking to them. They mainly work on energy, mm -hmm. but food is responsible. By the way, food system emissions. The food system is responsible for 30% of the total human-caused greenhouse gases. Yeah. It's amazingly it's big. A, it's busy. It really yeah. is. It's huge. So that's when you take the energy to, to make the fertilizers, the energy to make the tractors, right? The clearing of the land, the draining of the peat land, then the on-farm, all the on-farm energy used, yes. plus rice, plus beef cattle, yes. plus all yes. of that, right? And then all the emissions on the supply chain, all the transportation, right? And then, of course, there's food loss and waste all along. Yes. So it's really huge, really huge player. But back to the um, emissions from the, um, so the cities really mm -hmm. need to be involved as well on both sides. So the changes have happened. Every day we get news and sometimes they're not very good. Uh, how do you keep motivated? How do you yeah. keep hopeful? Because yeah. it doesn't, when you look at you know, the, the last COP yeah. uh, in Sharm Mm -hmm. you, sometimes you you okay as as an audience i would say I'm not super excited about the results yeah. <laughs> not seeing the big changes happening uh how how do you keep motivated to to keep on you know pressing the issue and and coming further with you know more refined models and talking to the decision makers and the policy makers uh, and the, the scientific community about you know things are happening <laughs> yes Right. How do you keep that motivation? Yeah, I've just been, I'm, I'm so fortunate because I interact with so many groups. Remember mm -hmm. you said in the beginning yes. about bring, bringing the groups together and mm -hmm. interacting and working together. And because I'm, I'm just been so fortunate to be able to interact with so many groups around the world, 
I, listen, it's, it's not only that climate change is happening, climate change solutions and actions are happening. Yeah. There's just tremendous uptake. And I think there's a little bit, there's a thing with the media. I know you're interested in the media representation mm -hmm. of climate change and its impacts and its solutions. And, you know, solutions are good news. But, you know, Definitely. the media is much more driven by bad news. Yeah, I and think. I I think it's 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 fascinating to see how people are actually dealing with those issues and how they're fighting at their level. Because exactly. I, I have I have a I have a belief that if we wait for the you know the news or the decision to come from high up, <laughs> we can wait for a long time. <laughs> exactly. That's when when I flew home on the plane after Copenhagen, I had that realization. It's like, we can't wait anymore for the countries. They did finally catch up with the mm -hmm. Paris Agreement yes. and they're working hard and, you know, loss and damage came with the, mm -hmm. you know, Sharm el-Sheikh and, and COP27. Yes. The loss and damage was extremely important. That had, But, you know, it took years of pushing. And it's right? got to be implemented. Yes, that's yeah. true. <laughs> that's true, very thing. much. But we, I was on a call this morning um, uh, with the World Adaptation. I'm part of the World Adaptation Science Program. It comes out of seven um, UNEP, uh, UN, um, and uh, funding uh, climate change action funding agencies. And we're going to be standing up a, a research program, a core project on implementation of adaptation for example so for and and on and a, and a research program on loss and damage yeah. so uh specifically so you know it, it again you see things are happening that often aren't represented mm -hmm. i think and look when you go to the, have you i don't know if you've been to the cup did you were you if you were in Sharm no. Shack, no. um i didn't go this year i was i've been to several of them mm -hmm. or many um and you know they're i i liken them to medieval fairs or oh. trade shows okay for climate change <laughs> and when you when you actually go and experience it so let's go you know let's meet in dubai because food by the way for the 28th food is going to be very front and center in dubai um and you'll see there are like 50,000 people all coming with their groups, their their work, what they're doing, their solutions. And you you come away much more encouraged than you would if you just read the media about what happened with the country yes. negotiations. Yes. Because there is always, you know, they, they pick and, and choose what can, you know, what can attract the audience <laughs> in a way. In that's a way. right. That's right. But this tremendous bottom-up. Oh, and the young people, and you know, it's just wonderful. Really, yeah. really, yeah. it's an experience. It's a life. To, it's. A, I tell my people in my group who go. You know, I've been. I, you know, we work on trading around to see who's going to go, and it's an experience of a lifetime. A lot of energy. People are trying to save the planet at the end of the day. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you really feel it. And especially, there's a lot of activists now that are uh, that are taking. How? What is the relationship? What kind of relationship exists between scientific scientists and activists? Is there is there right. are the bridges between the two, or they're right. like two separate tribes? <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely, I would say the um, you know it's I would say tribes different different tribes. It's just different roles in society. Mm -hmm. right? But what the way I describe it is for scientists, there's a 
individual scientists as individuals, there's a spectrum of engagement with activism. Some people like Jim Hansen, mm-hmm. very much um, as his uh, as as he um, as he went along in his, his career, he became both uh, he's a fantastic mm-hmm. scientist and an activist. Others are much more just on the other end. I just want to do my science. Sorry, no, I'm not interacting. And every scientist is finding their their place on that spectrum of the interaction with the activism. Because it's complicated in a, in a sense because you know there's the scientific rigor of the research and everything like yeah. that, but it is related yeah. to natural causes, natural things, you know, life in general. So you cannot be as you were saying when you, when you go to those uh seminars uh, across the world over the five days you take the people to the land to show them okay this is how a potato is grown this is how things are coming out of the soil yes very much so and also then effects of recent climate extremes just yes on a call yesterday you know um, a colleague was sharing about the issues in mozambique right now Mm -hmm. you know the horn of africa Mm -hmm. um East Africa, it's just happening now that and those climate and uh, food connections. So yes, get keeping keeping you know our feet on the ground uh, in our our feet in the fields yeah. maybe is what I feel is also very very important. Yeah. We're getting close to the end of the conversation. I was going to go on for hours, but I have a couple of more questions before we go to the people questionnaire. When we talk about the world food price. So, you know, the, the Nobel of, of food and, and, and agriculture, the Nobel Prize for food and agriculture, what does it, what does it mean to receive uh, such a prize and, and such a distinction? Because you've, you've been working in, in climate change for a very long time. How does it feel? It's just a tremendous, first of all, a surprise. I'll never forget when the, it was a Zoom call because <laughs> 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 it was during COVID, right? Um, it was a Zoom call and I was, it was really unexpected. Um, and I just am, continue to be and always will be. The thrill and honor of it will never go away. Oh, that's wonderful. And have you seen changes afterwards when people are talking about those issues about climate change after the, you know, the World Food Prize and people are saying, oh, this is interesting. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's look into it. Has it changed something? Oh, yes, very much so. You see, it shines this just very bright spotlight on the work of, first of all, on the really the challenges of climate change and food, because through my work on climate change and food, that is really what what the World Food Prize put shown this, you know, and it Mm -hmm. continues to shine this very bright spotlight on climate change and food. Then really specifically, it also shined a great spotlight on AgMIP. And so people now, many, many more people around the world know (laughs) about AgMIP and what we do. And we're, um, you know, have been able, you know, so wonderful new projects, new partnerships. Um, Also, you know, I've just interacted with so many groups around the world. Um, Yeah. So one, just I'll just share one. Uh, that's really arising directly mm-hmm. from um, from the food prize activities um, is a project. Um, it's being um, led out of the U.S. State Department, and it's on 
a vision for adapting soils and crops in Africa and not just the big four crops, you know, wheat, maize, soybean, and rice, right? But the traditional crops, they just gave us this list, 150 crops. So we have to now make models up for them. (laughs) We need a lot of data. So we're working with with the breeders, we're working with the nutritionists, and the models, bringing them together really in new ways um, to be able to really make sure that we have the genetic diversity to have resilience uh, to in the food security of Africa, in this case, the seed supplies, mm-hmm. which crops really seem to be the will be the most resilient, the most nutritious, right, which have the the seed there in this, you know, in the seed bank so that they can the the diversity can mm-hmm. be uh, saved and spread and generated and the seeds uh, generated and proliferated. Yeah. So it's a very exciting project that came directly from the prize. Wow, that's fascinating. I was I was talking to to one of the searchers at, at Grain, which is an NGO that supports small farmers, and it was, um, Devlin Kuyak was, was telling me that uh, Western Africa is, is one of the places where they have some of the most nutritious crops cassava being part of these and etc and it's it's fascinating to see how the local farmers were basically you know taking care of the families and everything because of of the local crops that they were right. you know growing biodiversity yes. is super important and what is very interesting in what you're saying is that maybe years ago decades ago that approach to biodiversity or regenerative and things like that or nutritious food was not on the map <laughs> no. it was not it was no. like a let's no. produce <laughs> right. And now there's this is the uh, we I, we hope a beginning of a very large effort to raise up those crops uh, and many, many more of them and the nutritious crops that have been sometimes they're cl- called neglected crops or orphan crops. But really, now we want to get them into families <laughs> right. so they won't be orphans anymore. Oh, that would be wonderful. One last question before the pivot questionnaire. When you look back, 85, and you see now, would you have expected the path that you would have taken? You know, I think in everyone's life, you, 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 you know, there are real, the path isn't straight. Yeah. Right. There's always cul-de-sacs and, and um, you know, different parts along the way. So I don't think think I could foresee and what I really couldn't foresee was like was the farm in Italy from the farm in Italy you know <laughs> with the with the chickens and the goats and you know picking the grapes and the olives and and um all of that um with our with our wonderful wonderful neighbors um who taught us to who really taught us how to do everything that and then coming all the way to the World Food Prize. That's the real amazing, amazing journey. In some ways, the science has this, see, with science, what you do is you do one and then you do one part. And so I did that first paper that was on where the wheat regions mm-hmm. would move in North America because they're linked to the bioclimatic uh, envelopes for the different types of wheat, red wheat and soft and hard mm-hmm. and, and all of that and, and uh, durum and 
cakes and bread, you know, different exactly for, di- for, di- for different varieties and, and parts of the species. But then I right away, then the next, I said, and I sent a memo to Jim Hansen and I said, look, what we need to do is you, we need to do the models. We need to bring the models into this. That was a different kind of model, expert system model or agroecological zone model. But we, what we need to do is do this dynamic, mo- these dynamic process models, kind of like the climate models, but for the crops that then because we have the CO2 effects coming in, that's positive on the yields, not so much on these other nutrients, but, and then we, and then we have to have the climate effects on the soil, mm-hmm. you know, at the rooting and all this. So that was the next step. And then we did the next step. Well, now we need to, let's bring in the water, let's have a project with okay. the water resources. And then how did the climate affect that? So you see how it's really a step-by-step that you can actually see from that very first 1985 paper, how each step is like, and the next question, that's what's so great about being a, a research scientist, that that's the way it really works. You have an idea what the next question is? Yes, very much. Um, <laughs> always. <laughs> When we look at AGMIF, and there's now there's more than one question, yeah. um, because we have about 25 or 30 different teams who work on improving the models for evapotranspiration, the water part. We're doing machine learning. How can, mm-hmm. what do we learn from re- machine learning? How do we put in, we have to put in um, much better job on frost, much better job on flooding. Mm-hmm. Um, and this nutrition, very, very key parts on um, nutrition, expanding the number of crops. So these are all, we call it the pedal diagram of AGMIF all of the things which are the next questions wow looking forward to uh to the next steps definitely as i said unfortunately we're getting close to the end as i say I could talk for hours this is absolutely fascinating but before ending uh, on a lighter note uh the pivot questionnaire so it's the first thing that comes to your mind um are you ready yes okay what's your favorite word energy I think you can see that. By the way, I think you can see that now. You now you now you now we've met each other. I think you can see why energy is my favorite word. <laughs> yes. What is your least favorite word? Hate. Mm-hmm. Your favorite virtue? Loyalty. Uh, your favorite quality in a woman? So it's the same for the woman and the man. Oh, fair enough. Non-defensiveness to bring people together and work together. We have to be non-defensive. Everybody. Wow. It's the first the first time that someone says because you have heard many. This is yeah. this is beautiful. So for the next one, the okay, so what wine or dish or ingredient or staple or produce would you use to describe yourself? Your I would say ratatouille. Oh. I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you why. It's Mediterranean. Yes. It's a Mediterranean dish. Yes. And, you know, my roots are in the Mediterranean, my, yeah. my, my agriculture roots. It's vegetarian. Yes. So, you know, we need to be focusing more on vegetarian, yes. you know, less on meat consumption. And just this wonderful melange mm. of all mm. the ingredients. Mm. Um That's my favorite. That's and I think that describes the work actually also as well. Oh yeah, I second that. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? Okay, so this one is really really hard because I don't I don't curse. So oh. my I come from a very very kind of strict Presbyterian background, oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this was really. 
like you know it's one of the it's a no no commandments yes it's a no yeah it was one of the 10 commandments okay so, so i just don't have them in my vocabulary okay so forget the curse word when you're upset okay. in traffic you're upset what do you say <laughs> <laughs> um i guess the far as i would go would be to say darn it <laughs> well fair enough nice <laughs> darn oh yeah darn is great <laughs> what sound or noise do you love um so this is relating to agmip and what you were saying about bringing groups together so in our very my our very very first meeting in which we brought modelers and agricultural modelers from all over the world and we still do this at our Agmit Global Workshops, and you're invited to our Global 9-1. It's the last week in June in New York. We want to get you to New York. Um, and we, at lunchtime, we had we asked people to eat lunch at tables for their continent. Oh. And so when you look out across the room, the, the dining room that you know where we're eating, it's a living map. And what you can hear is the noise. This is my favorite sound. So then the South Americans are speaking Spanish and Portuguese, yeah. right? The Europeans are like, you know, French and German, or, you know, of course, English is the, uh, you know, our common lingua franca. Yeah. But um, um, it's but just the, the sound of, of the living map is my favorite sound. Wow, nice. That's a first as well. I had the birds and I had the sea. <laughs> uh, what sound or noise do you hate? Yeah, so this one, it's hard. Um, so I'm a grandmother now. You oh, can see congrats. from my gray hair. So, which is such a wonderful, wonderful experience. But also, I think in a way, this this linkage of the food and then cooking for the grandchildren, you know, and being with the grandchildren. But when they're in pain, mm. it's so hard for the grandparents. So I would say... A grandchild in pain, the noise, the sounds that they make. That's the one I really, really don't like. What plant or animal would you like to be reincarnated in? So I just learned about the new crop from West Africa. You may have heard about it from um, the, the, uh, your interviewee from Grain. It's called Phonio. And there's a wonderful chef whom I'm not sure. Maybe you've had oh, Chef Pierre on. No. Is uh, it from Senegal? Uh, Yes, it's mm -hmm. yes, yes. He's from Senegal, I, I believe, and I think Fonio is grown there. It's like a millet, and we he we did this wonderful um, Bill Gates event. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's on the Goalkeepers event from Climate Week in New York, yeah. and he did a cooking demonstration, and it was with two two colleagues from Africa. Lindawi Zimbabwe Zimbanda was mm -hmm. one of them, or three three mm -hmm. of us, but it was Lindawi and me and bill gates and we all made a phonio salad together Ooh, nice. <laughs> and so phonio is my new thing <laughs> okay and last question if heaven exists what would you like to hear say god when you arrive at the pearly gates okay this is it i would like to hear how's agmip going <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cynthia Rosenzweig, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Antoine. Wonderful.